This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jeremy Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey, um, a fan of the show introduced us to Multiverse a few months ago. Since then, we've worked with the development team on a number of episodes, which reflects our shared interest, I think, on how stories are told, the means to create, and why worth follows from the lives that we help people make. So join us today as we talk with Lisa Trott, the head of marketing and community at Multiverse, about interactive games, why folks become a part of your tribe, and Building a world that's for both creators and entrepreneurs alike. We hope you enjoy. Hey, um, a fan of the show introduced us to Multiverse a few months ago. Since then, we've worked with the development team on a number of episodes which reflects our shared interest, I think, on how stories are told and told the means to create and why worth follows from the lives that we help people make. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) I think on how stories are told, the means to create and why worth follows from the lives we help folks make follows from the lives that we help people make. So join us today as we talk with Lisa Trott, the head of marketing and community at Multiverse, about interactive games, why folks become a part of your tribe, and building a world that's for both creatives and entrepreneurs alike. We hope you enjoy Hi all, I'm your host, Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, your storytelling guide for creatives and entrepreneurs alike, and those who take life by the tail. 
Here with me today for the beginning of season two is Lisa Trott, the head of community and marketing at Multiverse, a software platform for folks in the tabletop role-playing or storytelling market. The I don't know if it even called a market because it was a hobby, right? And it's become something so much more now. Yes. And it's uh, I tend to call it an industry in comparison to like the video games industry. But What do you think characterizes this particular industry is separate from other ones where storytelling is paramount to either the product or the promotion, the engagement or the experience around it? Mm -hmm. I think traditionally it's the format, right? So it started off as, you know, pen and paper progressed into formalized books. And uh, now we're kind of breaking more boundaries in terms of digital product. The way your platform works, multiverse, and how it differentiates from others comes down to what exactly? Does it is it in the user experience? Is it in the tools provided? It's a little bit of everything I like to, to think. Uh, we call it a platform. It's not necessarily, you know, uh, a software product or um, a service. It's it's a set of tools and experiences. It's sort of, yeah, it's it's tools and experiences for people to play in and play with, I guess is the best way of abbreviating it we're looking at kind of you know crossing the streams as it were of tabletop role-playing games board games which have been traditionally very physical uh, and then taking uh, a little bit of sprinkling of the best things of video games and marrying those together to create something like multiverse and i think for those who perhaps aren't as familiar with say the video game industry there's emerged perhaps in the best 20 15 20 years a vast community driven support around various IPs where folks mod, they create music, they create additional content, everything from, you know, as we've seen with other IPs like Harry Potter and stuff before, the fan support for something grows it far above and beyond perhaps what the initial idea was or the piece of content or product was, right? Yes. I mean, just talking about things from a video games perspective, which is actually the vast majority of my experience and mm -hmm. background uh, because I've always been uh, a tabletop and board game player, but it's always been my hobby and my my work has been in video games. So for me to be able to take my skill set from video games and apply it to what we abbreviate as TTRPGs, tabletop role-playing games, uh, has been a super interesting experience for me. And so, yes, much to your point, you know, the video games industry as a whole has seen a huge boom uh, over the last, you know, 20 years or so. Also with last year and restrictions and people trying to find new ways to connect, the video games industry is now worth more than the films industry and sports industries combined, which is mind-blowing to me, you know, growing up thinking, oh, I, I love video games, I want to work in them, and having my parents go, you'll never make any money out of working in video games. And here we are now with, you know, so many different kind of periphery products and markets for support tools, content creation, game engines, IP crossovers. Uh, the sky's the limit, really, in terms of everything that video games now touches. Do you think that opportunity for inter both interactivity within the game and without. So there is the experience within, say, Animal Crossing, where you can participate in a shared world experience with other players that you then share the story of with those players or in communities like Discord or on Twitter, on Twitter, Facebook, etc. Do you think that's been part of the appeal as we have 
particularly over the past year, needed to change the way we live our daily lives? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Yes. One of the interesting things, actually. So, again, you know, pulling from from video games as a whole, as a as a social tool, one of the reasons for, and I imagine most of your listeners will recognize this game title, the reason for Fortnite's success mm-hmm. is not that it is just a competitive FPS game. It's also that it kind of captured the imagination of a younger audience to use it as a tool for socializing, much like the success of things like Minecraft, mm-hmm. Roblox, These are all now huge IPs that are in uh, very much in the kind of mindshare of most households and parents and people who are talking about big business and large amounts of money in the fact that, you know, the reason why these games have thrived is that not only have they connected with a young audience in a way that made sense and is native to the way that people play and interact as they grow up in this digital first age, Mm -hmm. But their shared spaces, their shared stories, and with no necessarily real limitations in terms of economic factors necessarily, because they're available on so many platforms, from mobile to computers to consoles. And so these games have become big by people's need to have digital shared spaces. And that's only really enhanced now in the last couple of years, where we've had the physical taken away from us to a large degree. I think you see a similar intersection in education where the challenge has been seeing the prevalent trend, particularly in the younger generations, to integrate technology into their everyday experience, to have students who know or want to podcast, to upload their musical auditions to SoundCloud or many other sites nowadays, and expect right to be able to use the resources they do in their everyday life in the classroom as well. And particularly as business is pivoting, the idea that we need to be able to collaborate in shared spaces for whatever we move toward next not having the or needing the literacy to do that well right absolutely yes and literacy is with any kind of technology is something that comes more fluently with each generation obviously and it's something that uh you know as some of us get a bit older we have to constantly stay on top of especially (laughs) when yeah especially when we work in such you know what I like to call the digital frontier, as it were. My, my father, who is 86, one day asked me, what is Minecraft? Because it, I think it was after Microsoft purchased the acquisition. You know, made an acquisition. Amazing. And he's asking, you know, what, why is this in my, my financial newsfeed? And I said to him, do you remember my brother and I, we had Legos growing up. You and I used to build these elaborate facades, castles with histories and stories. My folks were journalists. So the whole idea of telling and creating your own stories was something I grew up with my entire childhood. Yeah. And when I said, it's Legos, but you don't need to have the physical Legos. They're on a cloud environment, essentially, and I can make anything with them or with anyone. Yes. And he went, so we could build that whole castle. And I said, yes, people have actually rebuilt Westeros from Game of Thrones, the show you're watching right now, right? They've also built a digital repository of banned literature from nations that don't allow that content, be it journalism, books, or otherwise, to be circulated within the physical bounds of the nation. But because Minecraft is the realm like the open seas that exist outside of that, you can create a digital repository of otherwise forsaken knowledge. Yeah. And that's one of just one of the small aspects, right? And what a what a wonderful opportunity you had there to be able to talk to your to your father about, you know, something is kind of current and generation breaking is Minecraft. 
I want to talk to you a bit about what drew you into the interactive storytelling industry, because it sounds like whether you were in video gaming or in your hobby or with Multiverse Now, there was something about the ability to tell shared stories and share that experience that's always drawn you in. So where did that begin or how did it begin for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, So strap in, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I... I always like to tell it like this, is that from a young age, I was always interested in video games to one degree or another. uh, A friend of mine had a Super Nintendo and I was fascinated by it. Um, My mother was like, no, you can't have one. You can't. Video games are pointless, as I'm sure a great many people identify Mm -hmm. with that. I didn't get my first game console until I was like 10 or 11 And I remember quite starkly, it was the Sega Master System 2 and I played Sonic the Hedgehog and then I was obsessed. Uh, And then my father, who enjoyed investing in new technology when we could, got our first home computer. The thing that I was obsessed with at that point was uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. And this probably won't make much sense to people outside of the UK, but it's basically, it was like Wikipedia before Wikipedia on like 10 discs and I would read it <laughs> obsessively. It then uh, later it inspired, I believe, uh, in Carter, which mm-hmm. uh, you know US folks might be more familiar with. And again, when in Carter was a thing, I would pour hours into reading all about everything. And I kind of do it myself and fall down wiki holes these days. But aside from that, the first computer game I played on that PC was uh, Age of Empires. Yeah, and uh, and at that point, I, I understood that computer games could be so different when you were playing against another person, and I instantly kind of connected while I'm playing with somebody else, and you know they're telling their own internal story, and it just kind of went from there. And um, I got, <laughs> we then got like kind of the internet and IRC channels and all of this stuff, and I basically joined a modding community mm-hmm. for a game called Day of Defeat. And I've, I've heard of that. Yeah. So the reason why you may have heard of it is because Valve ended up buying it and it's now called Day of Defeat Source. So I worked with this modding team on Day of Defeat before Valve bought it and I was doing texture art. But the thing that they were doing was creating entirely new levels for this game. And so, you know, I got interested in the art of environmental storytelling through object placement and, you know, asset use and things like this. And the importance of historical accuracy when you're looking at something that is set in World War II. And I, yeah, I became more and more interested with like how people connect to things through either explicit story or environmental story or didactic storytelling. It it kind of took me on a journey. (laughs) And (laughs) from there, I had a friend who was working with me in in the mod community and he had got himself a full-time gig at a game studio in New Jersey as a 3D artist. And he was like, "We're we're looking for smart people who are good with people and I suppose you can call me at least good with people, if not smart. Uh, (laughs) Is that what you said in the interview? Oh, well, uh, (laughs) this may be a story for another day, but it's ultimately the the job interview for this job for the New Jersey studio was the strangest one I've ever had. And because it was done entirely in game, 
But like I said, this is this is probably a story for another day. You know, I, I am okay with saving this for a future episode as a teaser. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm more than happy to go into that. Uh, but yeah, kind of back to the original thread, because I was based in Europe and because I speak Spanish as a second language, they were like, yeah, we really need somebody in your time zone and your skill set. And so I became essentially a community liaison Mm -hmm. and that ignited my passion for working in in the kind of community and marketing spaces originally in terms that, you know, I was essentially a bridge between consumers and the development team. There's a lot of problem solving and a lot of diplomacy, but also, you know, you get to see how passionate people are about the story that you're telling and the things that you're giving them and then they just run with it and it's really beautiful like that's one of the main things that I that keeps me going working in this space is just seeing how wonderful and creative it's great seeing that. I'm curious how much do you find the art of storytelling of saying where things have been where they are and where they'll go to be essential in your everyday life? Oh gosh, storytelling is is key to everything now. I mean, we talk about marketing beats in terms of what story are we telling and who are we telling it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, software development is talked about now in terms of storytelling and building a profile of the person that you're either telling the story to or telling a story about. We're framing things now not in kind of, you know, bullet-pointed lists, or things like that, where, you know, it's been very closed-minded thinking. We're thinking more about who people are, what they do, how is that important to the way that we communicate things to people. And that's, you know, I think storytelling has always been part of human history and human nature. We're just remembering now to reincorporate it back into ways of engaging with people. The idea of being able to recognize patterns and of experience of thoughts of things happening and attach them to the emotions we feel so that we can project or think about a future that could happen based on that, right? Precisely. It's it's no longer about a hard sell. Everybody always joked about, you know, marketing being a, a selling role or a, you know, a hard sell. But these days, it's really not how we think about things. We want to find genuine ways to connect with people. And the way that you do that typically is through story. So I think this is, since you've given me the appropriate segue for this, a question we started asking this season in particularly, how do you reach out to your market audience or tribe? We can speak both to the bit where you've been before, but I think in particular the multiverse now. And when I say market here, I speak of that in terms of like the top of funnel who might be interested, not necessarily, right? Audience, those who like, who follow, who subscribe, who are interested in what you do, and then tribe, the folks who actually provide to you the time, the information, the money. How do you reach out right now in multiverse, but also how did you at the places you worked before to your market audience and tribe? One of the things that I always say when I come into a community or marketing role is that you have to understand either who your audience is or where they are Mm -hmm. and then meet them there like okay well it's why things like you know player profiles or audience profiles are so Mm -hmm. important and it's often a thing that a great many companies skip thinking well I'm going to build the thing for me or I'm going to write the thing for me and call it good and it'll sell because I think it's great except that that's not how things work you have to understand well who's going to want to buy this thing and you have to find out who they are where they live not necessarily physically, but on the internet, <laughs> for example. I don't mean that in a creepy way. When you're at home online. 
Yes. Like where, where do they exist? Do they, do they dwell in forums? Do they prefer something like discord? Are they not necessarily engaged in that way? Are they more of a, like we like to call them on Twitch. Are they a lurker? Do they just read the content and absorb it? Uh, Maybe they don't enjoy the two-way interaction. They're just there to like read the content, go away and, and, and take it with them. Um, And it's understanding all those different kind of interaction styles and information consumption styles, uh, which I roll into meet them where they're at. It's so funny because in, in relationship dialogues, we talk about the book, since the book, The Language of Love, although I think we're able to apply the idea of think, hear, feel, see, and so on further beyond that. Yeah. I nowadays, when I talk with clients, say, please forgive me if I close my eyes when I'm listening. I'm primarily auditory. So I am, in my case, tuning out things that aren't helpful for me to listen to. It's mm-hmm. not an act of disrespect at all. It's, But it's, it's important for me to preface, hey, I'm trying to engage in, with you in the best way that's useful, but it's also important to say, of the ways you think and feel and work with the world, what is the easiest and most recognizably comfortable to you so that we can work in that space, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly the thing, right, is that much like, for example, um, in education, everybody learns differently. So some people learn uh, really well from reading books. Some people uh, learn really well from instruction, like one-to-one instruction from somebody. Some people learn great from videos, uh, but not everybody learns the same way, the best way. Like everybody has their own style of and, and kind of comfort level in how they absorb things. And so this is something that I think about pretty much all the time. I'm like, okay, how do I frame things on different platforms in a way that uh, is going to be palatable to people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Like, So, you know, uh, we have a newsletter because I know that some people just enjoy receiving missives uh, that they can read and they have no commitment to respond to us. And that's that. And they mm-hmm. enjoy that. And that's, that's where they're at. Then we have other people who are in our discord, which is, uh, you know, both, uh, text chat and uh, voice chat and some people enjoy the text chat component and are very fluent in that and it's very fast moving uh, other people are more comfortable in terms of using voice chat to communicate their thoughts and ideas and feelings to us some people just want to fill out a survey you know they don't want to have to talk to us directly and again it's us trying to find ways to respectfully communicate with our audience so there's that first step, which is, okay, if you'd like to be among the people who are interested, part of the audience, what way would you like to engage with us? The newsletter is great for passive responders who just want the information when they have time to look at it with no sense of urgency or demand from them as to how to engage. The folks on the social channels like Discord, Twitter, et cetera, want something live and dynamic, be it voice, be it text. There's a community experience they're looking for and that matters to them, right? And then the tribe folks are the people who want to take the actual platform itself and do a thing with it. There's a dream they're trying to achieve that this helps them arrive at. Yeah. And again, that latter category have interaction requirements as well. Either they just want to be given the the nuts and bolts, cold water and brass tacks instructions, or sometimes they want to talk it out with us. Sometimes it's a, it's a two-way discussion. And yeah, I think uh, a lot of companies miss a trick by just sticking to the method of communication that they're comfortable with instead of the method of communication that their current audience and potential audience want to use. 
years upon years ago, this is dating myself a bit. This is almost, I want to say, 20 years ago now. I was working for Pinney Bowes as an intern in the PR department, and they had an issue where their PR team expressed an an adversarial relationship with the journalist. The journalist would ask for information. The PR team would feel like this was some type of menacing impulse for trying to get you or get you to admit to a thing or to give information you're not giving anywhere else. So there was, a, there was always a conflict of what do you want from me? Why do I have to give it to you, et cetera? Yeah. And I, I get the more and more I listened to the PR team feel so put upon and read the journalist feeling so frustrated that they weren't getting what they needed to accurately report, the more I kept on thinking of the Berenstein Bears in the case of the Gimme Gimmies. Mm-hmm. Where it's just two kids going, I want, I want, I want, fighting over the things they want and need, while the heads of both are looking at each other saying, I, I don't know how to resolve this. And what it boiled down to there in terms of presentation was how to renegotiate that relationship, because it is something you both mutually want a thing out of. So how do you arrive at an understanding of that and then provide for it, right? And that that whole dynamic is exactly how community management came to be as a profession. <laughs> word for word, is that both sides want a thing. And they want things from each other. They just don't know how to communicate to each other effectively. That is what community management does in a lot of cases is that we translate, we bridge a gap, we find understanding on both sides and clear up communications on both sides. That's that's a big, big predominant part of community management. People often think that, you know, we're just like social media people that sit on Twitter all day and make funny <laughs> posts. But what we're actually doing is listening to both sides, so external and internal to a business, and trying to find that middle ground that suits everybody, which is remarkably difficult. (laughs) It's so fascinating because by the time someone identifies as part of your audience, by the time someone becomes part of the team, they are so committed to a thing they want out of what is being created, right? Yes. And they might want the same thing, but might not express in the same way, or they might want very different things require different paths to arrive at. Yep. How do you how have you found ways to navigate that? Oh my goodness. I mean that's it's it's so different from audience to audience as well. And I don't think you ever truly have like a, a precise framework to work by because you're mm-hmm. working with people and people are <laughs> imprecise. <laughs> imprecise but wonderful and multifaceted and very different from one another and there is no one solution fits all to this kind of thing you're you're basically problem solving constantly some of my background for example i worked in uh, product marketing for a while at nintendo mm-hmm. and at nintendo of america uh, here in in the pacific northwest and one of the fascinating things for me having worked in video games for a little while is that understanding that a uh, nintendo consumer is almost completely different in every other aspect of their behavior uh, in terms of, you know, online presence, purchasing, uh, history and habits to almost any other video game consumer that I had encountered in my work so far. You know, it's you are constantly learning about whatever pool you have thrown yourself into. (laughs) It it does. I I grew up with Nintendo, I think, as my first console. I... We migrated over, and I'll never forget this, to a Sony. And you know, we had Sony, my father's a photographer, we had Sony cameras, yeah. and television, but never the console because Nintendo was what we grew up with. I played Final Fantasy One and Super Mario Pinball and all those others. And yeah, I 
saw an advertisement, I think it was one of the first advertisements for a video game on television for Final Fantasy VII, the original, right? Which mm-hmm. during those days, you're going, oh my God, the graphics. And now we go, the graphics. <laughs> what were you <laughs> thinking? And I said, I want that. And my folks said, okay, but you have to get it for yourself. So I did all the chores and earned what I could and had the game, had the console. And then the dog ate the controller's wires because they... She wanted my attention, and the game was a rival. Oh, goodness. <laughs> lesson is an adolescent, you know, life balance, right? I, I wonder, thinking back to your point there, what it was in that kind of promotional language that made me migrate from the identity I'd had as a Nintendo gamer, consumer. My, my friends and I had the Nintendo Power comic with the guides and all that stuff, or comic, I say the magazine, right? We yeah. Were, we were core audience. What was in that pat in that moment that that invited me to be a different kind of market or a different kind of audience or where my life is going? And yeah, I I have friends who were dire Nintendo, and they I think there was a certain kind of I don't want to say more gen I, I would say this there was a certain more genteel experience that the games presented on the platform better for a whole family of all ages, right? Yeah. So here's here's something really interesting actually. And I would invite you to go watch this series. Uh, There is a series on Netflix called uh, High Score. And it actually delves into literally just what you were talking about in terms of how consoles came to be, especially in the kind of North American market, the marketing behind each of them. So it goes into Atari, it goes into Nintendo in both Japan and Mm -hmm. America, and how their marketing tactics in each of those markets changed and were challenged by other companies creating other consoles Uh, and it goes actually into quite a lot of history in terms of how people um, perceived each console and how the marketing impacted kids and the way that they understood video games and how households either became an Atari household or a Nintendo household but yeah, I would uh, if if somebody wants to familiarize themselves with the kind of the history of the original console wars, I, I highly recommend watching it. You know it was as a kid, as a some five to seven to nine, we hot seated games. We'd have parties. You'd sleep over. You'd hang out where we'd swap yeah. the controllers. In your adolescence, by and large, we started going into land parties and other means where you were individually with your console, and that whole yeah. idea of the solo play, the solo experience, or online or local land experience became the thing to do. So we would have land parties where people would carry all of the computers in the back of the truck, the yeah. wires. God, but outside of that, right, your experience was more individualized and individuated. And yes, the console that allowed for that to happen. I think that's where we community moved toward the PC, solo play moved toward the console. But yeah. Nintendo held on to the idea that we are a community, a family platform and service. Yeah. And they've they've always maintained that through game design, through hardware design. They've always had that element that they will never let go of them being a predominantly family-oriented company. How do you you connect what you make now multiverse to what your market audience and particularly the tribe want out of life so the storytellers the players the creators and i think we'll talk about this in two parts right one what it is you make and how it ties to what they want and then two how you were able to deliver on that promise or aim toward it yeah so with multiverse i think one of the main things for a great main many of us in the company is that 
we love tabletop role-playing games mm-hmm. like we're so so into it as a, a hobby and a format and ultimately it has because it typically but not always requires multiple people it has a social aspect like there is the aspect of getting together with friends or even strangers to have fun my co-founders sat down and went we love this hobby mm-hmm. we think it should be easier to get into for people because it has so much value as not only like a socializing tool but also a teaching tool mm. um and i can get into that in a moment but they they basically sat down and went well you know we are not necessarily the traditional tabletop game target demographic how do we change that and you know all of our founders are from extremely diverse ethnic backgrounds and they were like how do we open this up to more people like us because we know that if they find this as a hobby they're going to love it mm-hmm. and so that's one of our main missions is just like opening up what we know can be a rewarding and positive hobby experience to more people that's always been at the core of of what we do and it's part of our you know core values it's part of our main story when we think about building things or adding things or things like that <laughs> nintendo being a platform a system a series of games a, a community built around the idea of things we can all enjoy, enjoy together mm-hmm. multiverse was built with the intention of being for the multitude of people who would like to play that might not have felt perhaps comfortable before yeah. engaging in a hobby that has unfortunately and traditionally been largely white and male that's that's precisely it and you know not to not to call out the original demographic or anything like that like it built something wonderful sure. but what we want to do is take that wonderful thing that was built and open it up to more people mm-hmm. what are the three as you would describe them core audiences and that lead into the tribe itself of people you provide for that multiverse is for I think obviously on a base level a multiverse is going to be for people who want to tell a story. We in the product call them storytellers and surprisingly <laughs> uh, but, spade, yeah. <laughs> yeah, spades a spade, but people who have been in tabletop role playing game spaces for a bit longer may recognize them more easily as game masters or dungeon masters or something along those lines. Those are like the traditional Storyteller was a uh, white wolf. I think, for instance, deliberately yes. migrated to the idea of storyteller to shift away from the sense of this being purely mechanical experience. Yeah, and we also wanted to uh, so fully kind of adopting what white wolf started there. We also wanted to move away from using uh, something like the word master because. In our hearts, we believe it's a collaborative experience and that we shouldn't be othering the person leading a game and building the game. They should be incorporated into the the kind of overall group in a more inclusive and welcoming way. So, you know, not to sound snooty or anything else, we just felt like Storyteller was a much nicer way to frame the role of that person and the value that they bring. I think... And I've argued for this on the show. Storyteller carries a different social, cultural, and historical weight, right? Mm-hmm. One that predates certainly what they shifted into as GM or Dungeon Master, however you want to title it. But the idea that when you're a storyteller, there's a tribe you speak to, mm-hmm. right? There's a folk, there's the people you're engaged with that you are beholden to, that you serve, that you provide for. 
who give you things in return. There's a greater sense of reciprocity to the role. Yes. We we see storytellers kind of as law keepers and historians and that kind of role. Like we wanted to give it a, a, a kind of a quality whereby it's it's not as kind of combative. I always I always personally felt like dungeon master or game master was a very combative way of referring to somebody that you're trying to play a game with and I don't have any issue with people identifying as game masters or or dungeon masters like no problem whatsoever or competitive play but yeah people should use the labels that they want to use like fully respect that I just I always thought like you know for, for and some people run their sessions in a combative style again whatever works for people we just always thought that like if you were trying to introduce new people to a mm-hmm. to a thing which is ultimately one of the main things we want to do is calling it something that kind of potentially aggressive or combative the the first thing that they want to be met with Right. So if inclusivity is the value that you, is one of the values that you as a company and through your product want to put forward, the kind yeah. of life or experience you want to provide, is that also something your audit, your market audience tribe wants? And if so, how do you create the product, the service, the conversation around it to make that understood and continuable, have a tribe around that experience, right? The selection of storyteller, and we may change this sure. um, because we always have internal debates of like, do we like something else better? And we're in the privileged <laughs> position to be able to debate that. Yeah. Um, but right now it's storyteller and people have adopted the term very readily um, and without complaint, which I'm we're incredibly grateful for. I will give you this because I found it useful to teach people who aren't as familiar with the culture and history of storytellers. Traditionally, historically, storytellers do three things for the folks in their tribe. They teach, they entertain, and they guide. Yeah, and that's definitely something that we thought about mm-hmm. when we made that initial selection. So, but yes, that's a very simple and wonderful way of putting it. Thank you. You're welcome. But I think it is part of why, and to your point, importantly, right, when you presented the way of thinking about this experience that would be shared between the company creating the product and the audience engaging in it to arrive at the place they want to arrive, this is the language they felt comfortable, they, the audience, the market, the tribe felt comfortable using to speak about themselves to you. No, that's precisely it. Like I said, so far, people have, have taken to it very well. Uh, and again, you know, some thanks to White Wolf for paving the way there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's back to the point. Um, our, our second kind of group of, of, of people that we would say that are, you know, the, another corner of the tribe that we're, we're speaking to is players. And, you know, they're the people who sign up to want to play a game, to sign up with other people, whether that's, you know, just them or a few more. And we uh, actually call them travelers. And this ties into kind of our wider branding in terms of traveling a multiverse or multiverses. And so again, we tend to, uh, we call them players, but we also call them travelers. Also, particularly in our Discord, we tag them as travelers. Uh, And again, we think it ties into the greater storytelling of having storytellers. We have travelers. That there's a shared world which you are coming specifically because you want to experience, not necessarily something you've made, but something that other people have created that exists and is now available for you to play. Yeah. And one of the one of the ideas is that, you know, with multiverse being not game specific, but a, a broader platform where multiple games can exist, is that people can travel between games. And so it makes them travelers in our minds. 
It's so fascinating because my, so my background is in anthropology, communications, the whole idea of ludonarrative and multiple selves is something we debated back and forth for decades because the yeah. ramifications. And I can talk about the metafiction all I want, but what it boils down to, for instance, is I'm on Final Fantasy XIV, a game I never thought I or expected to play. But I spoke <laughs> to a friend and he was laying out for me the origins of his avatar's name and character design and everything. And in mm -hmm. his particular case, it was being able to explore part of his self he didn't feel comfortable exploring within his own community, within his family. Yeah. And the fact that he could create not a persona, but an extension of the self and live that way, have people react to it, approximate, right, or play with the experiences that he might have in everyday life in a fictional realm to learn. Because fundamentally, we're, we're going to have my neuroscientist friend back on, Nick Laurie, later on, but fundamentally, as he'll talk to you, our brains don't differentiate between truth and fiction when it comes to the things we feel. No, that's and that's incredibly true. And actually, one of the the main things that that I love about tabletop role playing as as a hobby, and one of the main things that like got me passionate enough to start talking about it at um, kind of nerd conferences like Pax West, <laughs> is the interesting. Yeah, it's it, it's strange. So I love tabletop role playing. Got into it in my early twenties, which is far later than a whole bunch of other people. But the thing that I love the most about it is how you can use it as an educational and confidence building tool. Because much like you said, our brains don't necessarily distinguish how we feel in certain situations, whether it is, you know, our everyday lives or a fiction that we create or that we're part of creating with others. And so one of the things that I used to do when, back when conferences were a thing is uh, we did a, a panel where we would use comedy improv techniques applied to Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. And then um, at one time we also did a panel about, you know, how these techniques can help you confidence build. It can help you relationship build. It can help you acquire social skills or improve social skills that you thought you didn't have or, you know, improve the ones that you do have. And so I got into it kind of at least talking about it publicly from that aspect of things, which I realize is remarkably strange. Um, and, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that. But, you know, improv comedy techniques can be applied to so many different things. And people run workshops for business and team building at mm -hmm. companies. And I was like, we can use these for Dungeons and Dragons or tabletop role-playing games. Now there are there are studies that are happening. Um, it's being used in schools to help children build confidence and teach them new life skills. And that's one of the things that I that I love about this hobby and this format and this industry is that it has so much potential and so much untapped potential, which is why, you know, one of our main missions is making it more accessible to people because I think people's lives would be enriched so much by acquiring this as a, as a hobby.
I and my co-host from Arthur Shaw Auto Worlds, we speak from years upon years of experience where we were brought in by other friends in our youth or adolescence. And that was an era where often folks in the hobby were ostracized as part of a weird nerd culture of a kind. Yeah. And to be fair, we didn't help with that. I think we, as that age is want to, you are want to at that age, you're given an identity and you either resist it or decide, fine, I'll be this, but you can't be it, right? So we disinvite other people who might have been interested. You know, we, we like Magic the Gathering. We gave it up and then it became a popular thing. Folks came yeah. to us to ask for advice and we foolishly turned them down thinking they just wanted our insights. The reality is those were opportunities to have become friends and who knows what else over the years with those people that we, for our lack of social cue reading, <laughs> did not. So, there's the irony, right? Here we are learning how to pretend to be other people, but we forgot to apply that in everyday lives. Of Oh, yeah. I should think not as me, but as you're thinking to understand why you're doing this right now. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I was, I got into tabletop role-playing games through a group of friends who wanted to share their love of it with me mm-hmm. like I went around to their house one day and I was like oh I'm sorry to interrupt I just come to drop <laughs> some stuff off and they were like oh yeah it's no problem I was like oh what are you guys doing and they're like oh we're playing this game I was like oh that's cool all right we'll see you soon and they're like oh do you do you want to just mm-hmm. like hang out and listen to us play and I was like oh yeah I mean I'm not doing anything i just pop around to see if you're all right and how you were doing and drop some stuff off they're like yeah no come sit you know hang out ask questions and i was so lucky to have that group of people in my life yeah it it just kind of blossomed from there and i think you know one of the things that we can do as people who enjoy this hobby and have maybe been doing it for a while is learn to recognize the opportunity to welcome others that's why I think it's so fascinating that not only does your platform work on the level of telling a story through the browser-based experience, which for those familiar with the SNES 16-bit era of graphic video games is, I think, kind of the... What I had this, I had a real sense of nostalgia looking at some of your demos because <laughs> I remember playing stories in that, in that visual storybook fashion. And yes. then you have the folks who wish to travel in these fictional worlds that don't necessarily want to engage in the the rules and the mechanics or the hidden makings that let everything run smoothly. But I think it's so important because your platform also allows for the folks to create all that incredible content, the graphic design, the sprites, the hidden mechanics that make the worlds work, right? Yes. And thank you for that very generous segue into our, our third, <laughs> our third kind for. of, uh, yes, no, exactly. Our third kind of um, group of people that we feel are important and core to the multiverse experience is creators. I suppose if you're talking about it in a more story-making context, um, artisans, we lean heavily, like you said, on a a pixel art style um, for the vast majority of our in-game assets, as it were, uh, because we feel like actually pixel art is one of the most accessible styles of game art that people can learn to create very easily, but it's more difficult to master. Mm. Um, And I will attest to that is that I've done very basic pixel art over the years, but uh, some of our artists here at Multiverse, my goodness, the talent. I Every day I see things that they're making and it blows me away. It it follows in practice similar methodologies to Seurat and Monet. And I'd say probably one of my favorites too, Vemgo, where... It's not in the individual 
effect of the brush or the strokes or the colors laid out, but as you step back and take it all on on the whole. Yes. And the pixel art of now is not the pixel art of yours inspired by. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's it's uh, it's certainly advanced as the tools have improved and people realize that they can apply uh, techniques from the classic masters, as it were, to things like pixel art. Uh, you now see things that are absolutely breathtaking. And so, but like I said, we still want it to be something that's accessible to mm-hmm. people to learn and to create their own things. And so pixel art just fit that perfectly. You know, it's scalable. It can be learned at various different levels. And I'm talking about art specifically right now, but creators, we also consider illustration artists because you're going to want things like character portraits uh, or, you know, you may want to create a pseudo book cover for your supplement that you're creating in the platform. Music. Uh, Music, yes, like audio engineers uh, for sound effects or spell effects, that kind of stuff. So when we say creators, we mean the whole spectrum of kind of creative endeavors that you could apply to a visual medium. How does it look? How does it sound? How does it feel? What's the texture it evokes? Uh, And we also, we include game designers in creators as well, because they are creating, you know, frameworks for people to use Mm -hmm. to play with. We're including writers because, you know, maybe they're writing up an adventure. Maybe they're writing up a item description. Uh, So these are all people who are making something that contributes to the greater whole. And it's such a big group of people. But, you know, these are people that we want to give an outlet not just creatively, but, you know, kind of coming back to one of our other core concepts of multiverses that we believe that people should be able to make a living from working in tabletop role-play games. I remember probably from my earlier days, was it was a, it was a vision, perhaps even Gygax, the founder of D&D, one of mm. the, along with Arneson and the others, cogitated the sense that, yes, it's a hobby, yes, it's a game, but there's something that will emerge greater out of this that I don't think he could fully articulate back then. But yes, it speaks to, I interviewed a writer last year and she told me when she was a child that she would sit in this gazebo in the USSR, former USSR, and create props to tell stories about the places she had traveled to, to her friends. And that is the fundamental act of what Tabletop tries to reach toward. Here's the world, here's an experience I'm going to engage with you in, and here's what you will take away or learn from that. And whether it is a tall tale in her case, or a fable, or an actual non-fictional journey. So I'm being interviewed not too much <laughs> later this week, actually, with someone who does transformational nonfiction. And that sounds like a mouthful. And you go, oh, it's about your life, what you've learned, and what I can learn from that. Yeah. Which is a great deal of storytelling. It, yeah, no, precisely. The fact that your platform allows for people who have different interests within the medium. Yeah. Or reasons to engage with it. So artists who can put up assets like they do, for, say, for music. And this is important because talent scouts, I think, as you know, scour through any types of collection, collective repositories, VG Remix for music. Yep. A lot of indie productions hire folks out of that or triple A's select people to partner up with to do pieces. Yep. On. I mean, we spend an awful lot of time at looking at pixel artists on Twitter. I'll be honest with you. I'm we're sure. always looking, we're always scouring for like, huh, what do you, what do you do? Ooh, you sound, you sound interesting. Oh, you make stuff that's very similar to our in-house style. Hmm. 
we do talent scouting ourselves. <laughs> Are you familiar with Supergiant Games, right? Hades? Yes. So Gen Z, I first found on Elfwood, probably about, <laughs> I want to say, more than a couple of decades ago when she was emerging and practicing her watercolor techniques. And I lost track of her for a while. But when I think Bastion first emerged, I'm looking at this art style going, that seems so evocative, unique, yes. and familiar. And I play through the game and the credits roll. I'm going, that's you. <laughs> you know, emerging student came out of the graphic design and traditional water school and all these techniques. Yeah. Now you look at say Hades, which has an art deco Greek mythology take. Yeah. And yeah, it's a my illustrator for the work I do now, someone I met on Twitter that we speak back and forth to primarily online. Oh well, yeah, no, we love we love artists Twitter so much at Multiverse. <laughs> like we're constantly sharing, like, look at this incredibly talented person, like constantly. So yes. It's amazing what the opportunity to share your work for a purpose can do when it comes to growing your own market audience or tribe as a creator. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing is that we want to give, you know, more visibility to creators. Uh, we want to give them more opportunities to earn good money from their work. Like we want it to be fair. We want it to be something that they can live off of if that's what they want to do. In your platform, folks will be able to purchase stuff that isn't already in the base license. Yes. No, okay. absolutely. That is that is our, our ultimate intent. So one of the things that we talked about back way back when we when we originally started doing a Kickstarter, but that then, you know, the pandemic came along and we felt like that wasn't a particularly sensitive way to go about uh, building what we were trying to build. So, uh, but the marketplace has always been at the core of what we wanted to achieve with Multiverse uh, is a way to support creators. And, you know, we want to make sure that people get a fair cut of the thing that they are making and selling. And yeah, it's, it's, it's always been, like I said, core to what we were trying to achieve. And whether that's, you know, you're an illustrator, whether you're a pixel artist, whether you're an audio engineer, whether you're a musician, uh, whether you're a writer, whether you're a game designer, we want you to be able to have something that works for you to sell tabletop role-playing content. I think this definitely leads us to our third question, which is how do you or did you discover the trust, impact, or legacy that the thing you make for them will provide to the people you serve? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. So we think that by enabling people to earn a living creating for the tabletop industry, it will turn the industry on its head. Because right now, like, it's only just becoming vaguely possible for people to make a living doing it. Um, and the margins are so terrible in book publishing, uh, specifically in tabletop role-playing games and board games, sure. that, you know, the you're working to ridiculously tight margins because of the production requirements of a physical product. And digital pricing hasn't really caught up with the fact that people need to make a living wage. And that's something that's important to us at Multiverse is that people be able to earn a living wage. And so we want to be able to bring the bar up, not lower it, if that makes sense. And we think that if that's a legacy that we can achieve, which we realize is somewhat lofty, imagine that. Imagine people being able to earn a decent living from creating things like tabletop role-playing games that then go on to have a lasting impact in other people's lives. It, it's so fascinating because I think back to what drew me into the hobby, and it was at first friends and the ability to be with friends where friends wanted to be, right? So yeah. if more of my friends were 
and not that we weren't also in some cases athletic or had other hobbies, but the place we all met tended to be around this one hobby Yeah. at that point in our life. And then over the years, that has emerged as a way to stay in touch with friends. We do podcasts now where we use these stories to continue practicing and holding those skills. But I know for myself, for instance, right, I in part tell stories through these kinds of games because I enjoy it, one, but two, as a writer, it helped me to learn how to let characters have their own lives that they lived and to not want or desire the control over that. Mm-hmm. And it made me a better craftsman and educator for folks who write and tell stories because the moment I relinquished control over things I did not have control over in reality, yeah, I could discover all the wondrous things that unfolded from there. And in that same sense, the moment you stop trying to create a thing in a void without understanding who, what, or what they might want it for or why, but instead go and ask them, what is the thing you guys need? Not just the everyday thing you need or the place you're trying to reach next, but where you want to arrive, right? Yeah. Desire, destiny, that dream you're going at. If I'm a creator, I want to sustain myself, my family, my tribe on what I make. That's always the hope with people who are driven to create. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's something that we, again, try and embody at Multiverse is that we are constantly listening to our storytellers, to our players, our travelers, and to our future creators, is that we want to know what matters to them. And if we make changes, how it impacts them before we make them. It's so important to continue a narrative with the groups of people that you have chosen to engage with, so as to make sure that you are still creating something worthy of them. I think that word worthy is important because it puts your market, the folks you're trying to sell to your audience, the folks who engage with you and your tribe, the folks who actually work with and provide you that you create a legacy with on a different level and relationship than it is simply to sell a product and walk away. You are acknowledging that this isn't purely a transactional experience. There's quite, By the nature of the way your business model works as a creator. I have to continue making things through your platform that are discovered, favored, liked, approved of, and made available to the folks who tell stories, who play within the stories that are shared online. All the mechanisms for that have to be easy and usable so that, for instance, let's say I find this beautiful moving tree sequence in the game I'm playing. I can share, this was an awesome experience, clip, pop to Twitter, tag, et cetera, right? Yeah. And that's that's the thing, right, is that So uh, I will do a a marginal plug in that, you know, if people want to join the Multiverse Discord, we are in there all the time talking about the product, but not just about the product, about the hobby in general. We'll talk about indie TTRPGs. We'll talk about, you know, what are people playing right now? We'll talk about kind of larger scale world building concepts. And it's so important to us as somebody, uh, you know, somebody like me, interested in like the interpersonal connections between a product and people and you know I probably shouldn't speak for the rest of the dev team but I will is that it's important for us to have an open discourse with the people either who were early backers for us Mm -hmm. or are considering us as a new platform or considering us as a place for them to sell their content having open discourse is and, and, you know, a certain level of transparency is so important for us as a company. Like I said, yes, going back to that word worthy, we want our product to be worthy of people's time and attention. We want it to be something that people come back to willingly. We want it to be good enough that people would consider doing that. 
So, um, and yeah, that's, it's something we talk about constantly. We reassess constantly because it's remarkably important to us. What do you consider in current pop culture or past wonderful examples of the kind of experience you'd like to provide to storytellers, to players, to creators? It, it's so difficult to compare what we're trying to do to other things, but I think, you know, we want to encourage the creativity that our predecessors have um, already seeded. So talking about things like Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons, things like that. We we want to continue to bring that creativity and innovation to more people. And, you know, it's such an important kind of thing to acknowledge is, is thing, companies like TSR and Gary Gygax gave us the initial blueprint for what we're now trying to do. And we're trying to, in, in the words of Disney, we're now trying to plus. Um, <laughs> and I, I always love going back to that Disney Pixar concept of plussing mm. things. It's how Imagineers have always been so successful. And it's, again, it's something that we try and apply to what we do every day. We want to have a, a sense of shared space of things like I mentioned before to kind of bring it back full circle, Roblox. Mm-hmm. Fortnite, Minecraft, uh, all of these things have been successful because they have given people the tools to be creative together in a way that is not as constrained as we have seen in the past. And that's, again, something that we try to embody and carry forward and find ways of doing ourselves. I found it so fascinating on the server earlier today to watch a discussion from last night into today about one, a figurine creator who has rolled out an entire line of characters in wheelchairs or other assistance devices. You think about a world, a fictional world. Of course, folks of different mobility needs and requirements would exist, mm-hmm. right? But I'm, I had to mentally roll back through all of the games we played to ask myself, had they ever been a character someone played? Had they ever been a character that mattered in some story that we told? Uh, you know, ostensibly, of course, these people would have existed in the world, but did they ever appear? And yet here's the figurine that flat out says, put this on the table. This is a real person in the story, right? Likewise, yeah. conversation ensued around that as well. If I have some friends who are blind. How do I engage them in a medium that has so many visual components? And then we started discussing adaptational techniques, well, on the platform itself, but outside of the platform. And I think it was so elucidating, but also important to watch that conversation emerge because while storytelling itself is adaptable, we tend to fall into set patterns of ways to tell it, particularly with, say, video games as an industry. They are largely video, visual and auditory. There's some exceptions. I think Ori and the, I'm going to mangle the name, but it's Ori in the Forest or something of that nature. Ori in the Blind Forest. Yes, that's it. Where occasionally indie games try to simulate certain kinds of experience that other people live in their daily life. But the idea of how do I invite people who have felt excluded before from this for whatever reason yeah. into this shared experience because of what I feel it could provide before them. And watching that conversation occur in real time in a hobby that I have been a part of for decades was immensely rewarding. I'm, that makes me incredibly happy to hear that, actually. And that conversation is, I feel, I feel it's exemplary of the attitude uh, that we're trying to foster 
in in the spaces that we that we have control over those are the kind of attitudes and things that we want people to carry forwards into other tabletop role-playing game spaces because I think if we're all able to meet each other in a conversation uh, on that kind of topic in that way we're just going to make the hobby a better place to be for everybody. And I want to call you out on the other mods on the server as well because importantly you acknowledge the act when it occurred. There wasn't a reward, there wasn't a Benny, people didn't get stars or stickers for it. The, The only reward by and large was the recognition that yes this is what we're aiming for you know thank you for helping us figure out a way to to make that work or would you be interested in helping us and it wasn't a it wasn't a you know we'll take that under consideration boilerplate conversation because we often all receive when we send our inquiries to large companies and no fault to theirs because the scale of that is immense right yeah and you know i think Basically, one of the things that that people fail to do, especially uh, when you talk uh, and exist in spaces so closely with consumers, is that they don't recognize how smart consumers are now. Me just saying, oh, thanks, we'll take that under consideration is insulting to our audience, to a consumer, to somebody considering using us as a platform. That's not how I operate and it never will be. Uh, I am there to listen to what matters to people and find a way to be able to interpret or implement that in our product. And if we can't implement it, it's for me to find a way to communicate why that wasn't possible. Like it's not for us to gloss over and I don't think anybody ever should. And I see it happen a lot and I'm not going to throw any shade on anybody, but I think people need to start reassessing how smart they think their consumers are. I always think back to uh, the interview with the International Human Machines Collaboration down in Pensacola. I was interviewing Mark Daniels and Billy Howell there, and Mark had suffered a traumatic injury that made it difficult and impossible for him to walk without mechanical assistance. Mm-hmm. And people asked him, you know, why was he doing this? And they said, it's not even for me. I want this technology to be at a place where other people at a younger point in life can make use of it immediately. Yeah. And that sense of you know, we may never get with me to the point where I'd like it to be, even though, and I'm okay with that because my goal, right? My vision here, my dream here is to push this technology far enough because I can, I can endure it where other people are able to, to get it there. I think the attitude of either leaving things or finding things or pushing things to be better than they were before is often something that a lot of people lose sight of. It's difficult sometimes to do that and to find the the drive to do that. But I think, you know, if people could continue to to have that attitude in small ways in both their work life and their personal lives, then I think we would all be better off. <laughs> Not to get too metaphysical, but I do have to ask you, since your platform is about sharing and creating multiple stories, fictional or otherwise, mm-hmm. is there any particular one you would want to create or to play in? Oh my goodness. Um so Obviously, like we want to try and uh, accommodate as many game types and system types as possible. Uh, but I I have a particular fondness for uh, an internal game that we've developed called a cult club. And it sort of, it, it combines um, a few different tropes and media types. So it has, you know, the chilling adventures of, of Sabrina mm-hmm. vibes to it. Um, 
if or or if you watch things like The Order on I think it's Netflix. Oh, yes. Um I have things to say about that. <laughs> it's it's got some of those young adult fiction kind of vibes to it Mm -hmm. but we've kind of combined it with a escape room puzzle solving west marches style uh mechanic to it so um it's like this occult university setting where Mm -hmm. you're a student and you get invited to uh, join the occult club um, and if you've watched the order it's something a bit like being invited to the order of the 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 hermetic rose yeah and so it has that kind of feeling to it and you have an initiation but because it's like almost a west marches style campaign setting um people can drop in and drop out um progress is usually made on a session by session basis instead of it being an overarching campaign so you get rewards based on sessions it was such a combination of what you might think would be completely incompatible concepts that when put together it just works so well and I, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I guess like we're plugging our own thing or I'm plugging our own thing, but I just think it, it's one of those things that like on paper, you'd be like, ah, I don't know, but actually in practice, it, it's so fun. I'm, I'm, I hear you because we had a three year, three and a half year long running game with a, an engineer, a medical professional and a philosophy, a philosophy grad student. And it was supposed to have been a magical academy, right? That was the initial premise. What if Harry Potter, yep. but we're all adults and therefore disastrous like the magicians. Right? <laughs> yes. And the magicians is a fascinating example of a story that evolved over time. Mm, yeah. Seasons one and two are entirely different than three and four, particularly that breakout session where to solve the, the escape room fundamentally, they have to go into a rendition of under pressure. Yeah. And it was a, a weird meta narrative moment where they acknowledged, yes. I felt yeah. like it was a callback to Buffy, the vampire slayer, and the musical episode in that. Absolutely. There was, it was a, there was a certain homage to the Joss Whedon way of telling stories, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. The reason I bring it up is that in this game we ran where they wanted these students in a magical academy, in episode or session three or so, they're staring wistfully out of this gate across to whatever side is unknown, and there's an description of what lays beyond time or, may, or what remains of time lies beyond here, or something to the effect. Mm-hmm. And they start pondering and declaring they're going to find a way through that to get there, because obviously it's the impossible. So in yeah. any game like that, you want to do the impossible as your end thing, right? I don't know why, but I had Moppets, actual little puppet figurines that were full of sand and seeds and other things as the school staff. <laughs> and... For whatever reason, the thought that they should break out into the man of La Mancha's to dream the impossible dream emerged. Wow. So I just, I looked at them, I said, humor me. I popped it open, I played it. And that set the precedent for musical interludes from our world emerging into the fictional one throughout the entirety of the game. We ended an entire arc with one of David Bowie's last songs. Wow. And Gosh. But yeah, it was... Now I remember my pointer. There's a certain beauty to spontaneity that only occurs if you are willing to step outside of where you were before. Absolutely. And that's, I think that embodies tabletop role-playing games to a T, is that we ask people to step out of their comfort zones. I mean, they can they can step in in their comfort zone, but what sure. we should be trying to achieve ultimately is through familiarity, getting them to eventually step out of their comfort zone. And you find these incredible moments that are poignant and silly and funny and weird and beautiful. 
And we live with those as an experience, one, but I think importantly, they help us look at the experiences we're having right now. You and I have talked about where we're at in our lives off the show. And yeah, it's some difficult times, but the because the stories, fictional or not, give us perspective on that, right? Mm-hmm. They also sure. give us the mean to live through the things we're living through now. Yeah. I have had a wonderful time having you on the show. I, if, before we finish, is there anything we haven't touched that you would want to? I know we're going to talk about that interview next time. No, I think I, I don't want to give too much uh, uh, away in terms of other potential topics of conversations. Oh, I, I see. We're leveraging this into a returning appearance. Uh, no, not necessarily. <laughs> no, not unless you would like to have me back. But it's been oh, sure. an absolute distinct pleasure uh, chatting to you today. It really has. I, I would personally be fascinated because the interview experience is a journey. And the fact that this occurred during the game, this is... I think some of the weirdest questions I've had is, so grilled pineapple or grilled mango as an interview question? Oh, interesting. Which, they're both good, but mango. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I would be curious because that is a weird, created, non-lived, an an unnatural narrative that we all live through. Yeah, Yeah, it was weird. (laughs) They sandwiched it in a fictionalized framework. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> there's there's so much to unpack there. So yes, we're going to do that. We're going to explore that personal essay because I think... More than happy to. Awesome. And I know we have the rest of the team on for the on Otter Wills to finish up a story. We're playtesting Multiverse later on too. Where can people find what you guys do right now? Yes. So uh, you can find us at multiverse.com, which is our website. And that is a, a jumping off point to uh, most other places that we are on the internet. Uh, but you can find us on Twitter at play underscore multiverse, or you can find us on Discord. And that's uh, discord.gg forward slash multiverse is our is our link. And um, we recently joined Instagram as well. And that's play.multiverse on Instagram. Um, but we are, uh, as we like to jokingly say, extremely online. So it's not <laughs> difficult to reach us at all. You will eventually transcend yourselves, Ray Kurzweil style, to live within the multiverse. You've uh, we shall, we shall live in the the multiverse Dyson sphere. We shall ascend. Oh, <laughs> we need to talk. I don't know if you've read it, but Tad Williams' Otherworld series is about all that. Yes. No. I I, I read an awful lot of fiction. So yes. <laughs> I, yes. I think we'll have to these on our other episodes. We delve more into that kind of stuff. We have actually as a tease for next time, my friend and neuroscientist plus many other things, Nick Laura is going to be on to talk about the sci-fi story lockdown and how that leads to deism and other weirdness around what happens when your mind lives forever and your body doesn't. But it has been a pleasure, as I said before, having you on. I look forward to our future conversations as well about the interview, fictions you want to discuss and otherwise, because I think, you know, another good conversation, maybe we can have the team on here too, talking about why you guys picked Sabrina, the order and other stuff as your formative narrative for this game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure the I'm sure the team would love to talk about how how uh, a cult club came to be. <laughs> <laughs> and where can folks find you particularly if you'd like them to follow or get in touch with you? Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Vunes. So that's V O O N E S S, um, or Lisa Trot dot com uh, is my website. It has been a great time. I look forward to the next. You guys know where to find us. It's in the outro as well, which is new. So stay for that because you should hear it. It's 
Our partner, iCreate Sound, did a wonderful job rolling that out, and I would love to hear your reactions to it. But otherwise, at HP Tigers on Instagram, soon to be on Twitter. I have to change my profile of 11 years on that, which is a bit of inertia there, but I'll get to it. And I'm going to tag you guys on Instagram as soon as we finish up with this. We will have you all back, though. See everyone next time. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.